creative journey It's easy to get lost But don't worry, you'll lift off Sometimes you just need a creative pep talk Hey, you're listening to Creative Pep Talk, a weekly podcast companion for your creative journey. I'm Annie J. Pizza, I'm a New York Times bestselling author and illustrator, and I will be your guide on this creative expedition. Let's go. Do you ever worry that your work is just white noise? There's so much stuff out there, man. How can you stop the scroll as they say can you get people to actually pay attention to the work that you're making or is it just like eh, 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 you know and they don't even pause for a second let alone feel anything if that is a problem that you're facing you just can't get people's attention and even when you do you can't get them to feel anything more than just a little well that's kind of cool like if you want to go deeper with your work you need some methods on how to do that consistently and if you stick around for the end of this episode i'm going to give you five specific tactics to add juicy flavor juicy flavor to your creative work to make people really feel something. All right, let's get into it. I really needed to rehaul my website. I was talking to some web people, looking around, and I got intrigued by Squarespace's new fluid engine, partially because it just sounds cool, but also because it allows you to drag and resize and layer up anything you can imagine. I dove in, rebuilt my site. It's the most me site that I've ever had. I just absolutely love it. Launched it. Got such a great response. Some industry illustration and designy peers even reached out and was like, hey, who coded this thing, man? I'm like, y'all, I did it by myself. No coding with Squarespace's new Fluid Engine. I told him, like, you should go check it out. You're going to be surprised with what you can do. And I built this thing before Squarespace reached out to sponsor the show. So I was like, boom, easy peasy. I was going to tell you about this new site. Anyway, go check it out, AnnieJPizza.com if you want to see what I did with it. If you want to try it yourself, make a site that's totally you, where you can build a portfolio, sell content and courses and all kinds of other stuff, head to squarespace.com for a free trial. And when you're ready to launch, save 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain with promo code PEPTALK, all one word, all uppercase. This episode is supported by In The Making, an original podcast brought to you by Adobe Express, the all-in-one content creation app included in your Creative Cloud membership. If you are trying to boost the YouTube, TikTok, Reels content side of what you're doing, one episode of In The Making that I think will be super useful to you is their episode with John Yushai. I think John's method for including his audience in the process is really inspiring. And if you want to hear about that and more about leveling up your game in the creator economy, just search In The Making in your podcast player to listen. Many thanks to In The Making and Adobe Express for their support. (laughs) 
So if you are a new listener of the show, you might not have ever heard this. It's been a minute since I told this story. If you're a longtime listener, I have a different point I want to make with an old story. I'm not going to do the whole thing. I'm just going to go quick on it. It's a classic. It's actually the story that got me into telling stories. Back in the day, I did a talk before I ever did the show where I told a story about running to a tower. Okay. <laughs> so one of the dumbest things that I ever did, but, um, you know, that's the great thing about being a storyteller or an artist or a comedian or whatever you are, a musician, when bad things happen, you can do this kind of reverse, you know, kind of they do in jujitsu where you use their strength against them. When bad things happen, you can be sadistic and be like, this is going to be great material. And, um, so it was one of the dumbest things I ever did, but, um, I've been milking it for a long time time now, but here's the idea. Then England, uh, in the Hills of Yorkshire. And that's when I started, um, running very slowly, just as I do today, a little bit slower than I do today, but I'm still a slow runner and, uh, just do it for my mental health mainly. And a little bit for the body. But anyway, that's when I learned that I could run, uh, more than a mile, more than a couple miles. If I did it real slow and uh, one day I go on a run and I see this giant tower in the distance. Uh, I know now it's called Emily Moore Mast. It's in West Yorkshire. It's the tallest freestanding structure in the UK. And since I've been telling that story on this show for years, uh, people have even sent me photos of when they see it or some people that live near it have sent me photos. And when I'm in Yorkshire visiting my wife's family, I always take a photo of it and uh, share it on Instagram and, and say... Should I, should I do it? Should I run to this tower again? Um, but one day, you know, I'm out there and I see this tower and uh, it makes me feel like Whitney Houston. You know, I want to run to you. That kind of thing. And it looks like a giant flaming eye tower kind of thing. It, it's not actually on fire, but it looks Lord of the Rings-ish. And my. Especially in those West Yorkshire Hills. I just had this ridiculous thought. I thought, I'm going to run to that tower. And I think I had a great strategy for getting to it because it was such a tall goal that I could just take the road that looks like it's pointing that way. And when the road I'm on starts pointing the wrong way, I'll just take the next right road. And that method of kind of reverse engineering back how to get there worked. And it's a great metaphor, I think, for what strategy is. You know, if you go look up the definition of strategy, it's all about reverse engineering a plan. It's about having a goal in mind. I want to go hit that thing and then saying, well, what step would I need to take? Um, what would be the, the last step to get there? And then what would be the step before that? And what would be the step before that? What would be step before that? So that you can work backwards from that goal to where your feet are planted right now and make a plan. And that's strategy in a nutshell. And it's a really powerful idea. And in fact, in the creative world, I think that we overemphasize what I call Ouija board creativity. And then I heard John Mayer steal it from me. Definitely didn't steal it from me. Um, he's never heard this, but I heard him actually call just like making up lyrics on the spot as Ouija board creating. And I think Ross Tam, um, from, uh, 
formally uh, uh, from Vampire Weekend say it as well, but just that Ouija board creativity where you don't know, you start out on a journey where you don't know what's gonna, where it's going to take you. I think we think of creativity as that thing where it's making something up that the world's never seen. It's basically improv versus creativity of telling a joke where you know the tower, you know the punchline before you start talking. But we don't give as much play to that kind of strategic creativity. And in the writing world, we've went over this a few times. It's it's basically plotters versus pantsers. Plotters being like they've plotted out the book. They know where it's going. They've outlined it. Some people outline it really intensely and then just fill in the gaps. And then other people like Stephen King just sit down and start writing, right? And, um, you know, some of my favorite things are pantser-like a movie I've talked about a lot recently is the Banshees of Inishirin. Just love that. And I know um, that the writer just, he's a pantser and you get some really, really fascinating things. But for me personally, I find that when you can harness both sides of the creativity, it can really do some incredible things and you can avoid, you know, being in that situation where as a pantser, you wrote a show that seemed like it was going somewhere for nine seasons. It turns out it was all a dream because that's the only thing you could dream up when you didn't have a plan for the end. You didn't have a tower in your mind. And the reason why I bring up this story again is because I recently realized that or I've been r- ruminating on the idea that that is a great metaphor for business and goals on how to reach your achievements that you're after, but it's also just a great metaphor for making the creative work itself. And that's what I want to explore in this episode. So if you're in a place where you feel like your work is white noise, if you feel like people are not having a strong reaction to your work, what is the strong reaction you want them to have? That's the tower. If it's laughing out loud, you should know that. If it's crying, if it's feeling wonder, if it's feeling anger, whatever it is that you're wanting them to feel, if you have a really good idea of what that is, you can start tracing back the steps from that tower all the way to where you stand by understanding the mode of of operation, your method, your tactics, your MO, your modus operandi. Um, how, How do you do what you do? How do you get them to feel what you want them to feel? And I think if you talk to real creative professionals, if you were able to dig in below the surface, you're going to find out they have a lot of tactics. They're not just winging it. Even if they're pantsers, they have some tools of the trade that they know like, oh, this kind of foreshadowing really makes the payoff work excellently. And so the first thing that I think you should do if you feel like people are not responding in a strong way, if, you, if you're worried that your work is white noise, is to set up that tower and say, what is the feeling that I'm trying to produce in them? And if you're having a hard time coming up with what that feeling could be, I suggest starting with your taste and saying, what is your favorite feeling for that work to produce in you? If you're an illustrator, what illustrations, what feeling do your favorite illustrators provoke in and evoke through their work. Write that down. Make a list. Like these are the things that I would love to produce. These are people that do it. And then you can start 
reverse engineering how they get to those towers. You can understand how they construct those things, but you don't have to just do it on your own. There are so many resources out there that you can find where people will share some of the methodology of how to produce feelings and emotions. And the whole idea is that you would have somewhat of a roadmap of the human mind. You would understand how some of those buttons work. I'm a big believer in the idea that you're not, as a musician, playing instruments. You're playing the crowd. You're, you're understanding. And, and, and that's the basics. That's the craft level of just understanding how it works. And in private conversations I've had with other artists, I've heard people get, there's a lot of conversation around is this a type of manipulation if you understand the bells and whistles and the mechanics and, and the machine that is the human brain and you use that to your advantage as a creator? I guess there is a way in which you could look at it as a type of manipulation. However, I have found from personal experience that when I'm writing a story and I'm trying to say something that isn't true, it breaks down. That if you are going to produce a feeling that is a true feeling, it's going to have to resonate at a true level. And yes, there, ha- there is propaganda and there have been stories that have been told and there's been creative work that's been made that has done real harm and it's a real power to wield. But ultimately, I am happy to play in this playground myself and also encourage others and try to equip others with tools to do the same because I have found that the best creative work, the most powerful creative work is the work that resonates on a true level. So I think of it less as, oh, this is a way of convincing people of something that I want them to believe and more that creative work is a powerful tool for making people feel something that they already know is true. And when you feel it, you know, you might say that collaborations are difficult. And I could say, yeah, I think that that's true. Like good collaborations can be really difficult. But when I read a story about it, I read the book Tomorrow and Tomorrow and Tomorrow recently, and that made me feel it. And when you feel a truth, you can embody it as if you had lived it. You can internalize that story and that experience and that art. And so I think it's less, I think propaganda, part of the reason why it isn't more powerful is that it breaks down when it breaks from what we know to be true. And so I don't think it's um, knowing these tactics, knowing these tools, yes, they're powerful, but they're most powerful potent and most powerful when they're paired with truth. And maybe it's a naive belief, but I, I still agree with Martin Luther King Jr. uh, when he says that the moral arc of the universe bends towards justice. And yeah, you got to zoom way out to see that trend because there's a lot of valleys. There's a lot of plummeting. But uh, I, I really think even if course correction ends up happening by 
us having to suffer a bit to learn lessons. I ultimately think that we are a good thing. I think that creatives are a good thing and art is a good thing and it is a part of the universe advancing. And you know what? I probably won't live long enough to know if that's true, but I'm going to live like it is. And um, I'm going to live like an artist who's trying to create things to make other people feel that truth. Okay, so here's what I thought we could do for a call to adventure. It's to pick a feeling and then find a mechanic, a method of how people do that. Go search it out. I'm going to give you five feelings and a few different tools on how to create them, but this list isn't exhaustive. There's so many different feelings and so many different ways to produce them uh, that we're not going to be able to get to, um, well, I don't even know all of them. It'd be impossible to make an exhaustive catalog. However, I will highlight, I started reading a book by a fellow Columbus creator named Angus Fletcher, and it's called Wonderworks, and it's all about the literary inventions. And he's going into this same idea of here are 20-some inventions of literature that changed the way that stories worked on people. I just started that book, and I mean, there's not really a uh, topic that interests me more. But that's kind of, we're going to do a little bit of a, a dive into that kind of thing. And the action is to find your MO, find your method, your mechanics, your modus operandi, the way that you get done what you're trying to achieve. Think you need to find some tools for your tool belt. So let's go through, we're going to go through five feelings, and I'm going to give some examples of tools to help produce those sorts of feelings in your audience so that it's not white noise, so that it's brown noise. All right, here we go. The first one is funny, laughter, making someone feel like something's funny. I'll give you two quick methods that you're that are really common just to exemplify this one is what I'll call seeing the simulation I think a lot of uh, comedians are you know the observational comics I think a lot of them are probably neurodivergent wouldn't surprise me if they just don't see they don't just fall into the patterns and habits of the masses because they don't work the same way. And so they're seen from an outside perspective. I'm not saying all of them are neurodivergent, but I think definitely some of them are. You know, one of the most famous ob observational comics of all time is Jerry Seinfeld. And, and by his own admission, he's wondered recently if perhaps he might be autistic. And I think it makes sense because he's kind of looking at it from the outside of the simulation and kind of pointing out how silly or ridiculous some of our behaviors are. One of my favorite ones uh, is Jim Gaffigan talks about how pickup trucks are just like a guy walking or pickup trucks that people don't actually use the truck portion of. It's kind of like a guy just walking around carrying one of those 
suitcases that are on wheels, but it's just empty, perpetually empty. And they're like, hey, we're going somewhere like, no, just just like walking around with an empty suitcase. And um, another one is novel comparisons, like novel analogies. This is one that I dove deeper into recently. Uh, I was looking at joke writing on YouTube and purely just for fun. I'm not a comedian. I'm a storyteller. There are some jokes and silly things I put in this podcast and in, in the live stories that I do, but um, I don't consider myself a comedian by any stretch. But I I also just love creative mechanics and writing mechanics. Um, and so I'm always like just trying to collect new ones and, and test them out and have fun with them. And one of the ones I came across is this video on YouTube. It's titled Bill Burr's Comedy Writing Secrets featuring the joke doctor. And he talks about a process of listing out qualities of something you want to talk about and just looking for uh, ones that jump out of out at you that have uh, something else that has this exact same in co- thing in common. And I think having a couple of these things is the most powerful. So I was thinking about that and I wrote a little tiny joke that I really just liked because it was fun. And this was when Instagram started really pushing reels on people. And I, I was writing stuff out and I thought, oh, this is Instagram really wants you to get into their video. And it's also not feeling very cool. A lot of people were feeling like they were trying to rip other people off or rip, rip TikTok off. And, um, I thought, okay, uncool pushing videos on you. Instagram is becoming basically the uncle Rico, all of our collective <laughs> uncle Rico. Hey, you guys want to see my video? <laughs> and, and so that's an example of that, of how to find those no- novel comparisons. And the suitcase is also one, Um, really when you take a suitcase compared to a pickup truck, an empty suitcase. All right. Second one moving. If you want to move them on an emotional level, make them cry, make them feel something, make them experience something that feels meaningful. Here's a couple different ones you can explore. The first one is, is where the story there, where there's a story where the character learns something that you already know that the audience already believes You know, sometimes when I'm writing a story and I show it to some friends, their feedback will be, I knew what the answer was the whole time. Like I, you gave it away or something like that. And sometimes you can't give it away if you give it, if you make it too obvious, but often a movie you're watching, the tension is created because you know, they're going after something they shouldn't. And that makes it even more sweet when the character finally learns the truth that you knew the whole time and you're watching them learn the hard way and you're feeling that. And so sometimes it is a story where you know, you already know this truth, but you're watching a a character learn it for themselves. I think about Spider-Verse. This is an example of that the only way you're going to learn is to try and fail. You can't just wait until you're ready. It's a leap of faith. Or Toy Story. We all know from the beginning, we all know the love that Woody's looking for is not going to be found in being the number one sheriff in town. That the the importance that Buzz wants to feel of mattering in the universe isn't going to be from being a space ranger that saves the world. It just needs to be being a friend to someone else. 
as the whole theory of it. We know they're off from the start. That's what creates the tension. That's the part that we're like, we know they're good, but they're missing something. They're, so that's one way to do it. Second one is the obstacle is the way. That's another way to make people feel something. This is another kind of story thing where if you can create, you could do it in a comic, you can do it in a three-panel thing, but essentially, how do you make the thing stopping a character from getting what they want deliver what they need? You know, the best friend that ruined things for this person with their crush who they think is going to be their soulmate ends up being their true soulmate. That kind of idea. The third one is wonder. Okay. So wonder can be something clever, like an optical illusion or something where, you know, like photorealism when you're impressing somebody and you're like, wow, I don't even know how they do that. But it can also just be leaning into what's easy for you. This is an idea I've been thinking about a lot. I heard a, a clip of Erica Badu talking about like master, just master the thing that's just easy for you. And I heard another, um, I can't remember who it was that said this, but if you, if you know, you can send it in and I'll, we'll put it in the show notes. But it was this person saying, don't think about what your passion is. Think about what's easy for you. That's just so easy for you to do. That's worth a lot to other people. And so if you're trying to produce wonder, one of the things you can do is Forrest Gump it, okay? So Forrest Gump it is the idea that he runs to the other side of the country. He's not doing anything clever, not doing anything miraculous. He's just doing something that comes easy to him, and he's just going hard in the paint in that thing to the point where people are like paying attention, asking like, what, what's, what do you know that we don't know? What do you got? Like that's one really powerful way to create art is take the thing that you could just do forever or that comes infinitely easy. And if you just take that to an extreme degree, if you pay extra attention to that thing, like gobs and gobs and gobs of time, the more time and energy you can spend on something, the more attention you can grab from somebody else. If you can immerse them in something that feels you know, wondrous. You know, that's something that um, I really like to do. I love drawing like giant scenes. There's one in my book, Invisible Things. The climax of the story is this double page spread where there's tons of invisible things hiding in there. And I spent extra time on that to make other people stop and spend extra time on the most important page in the book, the most important writing. Number four, horror and suspense. Not a huge horror fan. But I like eerie stuff, you know, like weird stuff. And, and I like suspense. I like thrillers. The first one is um, something you can't see is scarier than what you can see. This is a, just a classic mechanical thing. And I heard Jordan Peele talking about this uh, in regards to his latest movie, Nope, which I haven't seen. But I, got, I, I get the sense that it's got some kind of thing hiding in a cloud. But it still seemed too scary for me. Um, <laughs> but uh, I remember reading Walk It in My Pocket, a Dr. Seuss book when I was a kid, and there's a vug under the rug. And you never get to see what a vug looks like, and that's what makes it so scary. And it's the same thing as the alien in Signs. Like when you just saw that blurry image, your heart just stopped because that's a mechanic of creating horror, creating suspense, is knowing that the thing that your audience can cook up in their head is infinitely scarier than a thing that you can show them. 
The second one is, um, and this is more in the suspense category, is the God's eye view. Give your audience, show them something that the character doesn't see. And you can do this just in one illustration. You can just, you can make it so the character's eye view is missing something really essential in the illustration that the audience can see. And this is a thing that um, Hitchcock would do where the audience would know that there's dynamite about to go off at any second, but the people having a conversation don't know and they're just conversing and talking and the whole time you're feeling tremendous uh, sense of suspense. Last one, we'll do five, clever, making them feel clever. I think a lot of good design does this where you have this um, graphic mashup. You get these two different symbols and you find an interesting way where they overlap. One of my favorites is this poster by the Decoder Design Concern. Um, they, they made a poster for Modest Mouse and it was for the lyric, A Bad Thought. And A Bad Thought, they found the overlap between a skull and a light bulb. And they put it together in a way that was really elegant and nice. And the thing that happens is when you see it and you're looking at it and you're decoding it and you figure it out, you feel like you solved a puzzle. You feel clever. And that can be a really powerful way to do it. Another way I see it done in picture books is the word picture gap. The word picture gap is this idea that you know, Rosie's Walk, that's a classic picture book where the hen is walking through the stories just about the hen's walk, but the viewer, the audience can see that there's a fox about to eat the hen the whole way through that keeps getting foiled and creating all these funny moments. And I've heard John Klassen talk about how he's employed that same mechanic in books like I Want My Hat Back, where the thing that they're telling you in the words is different than the story that they're telling you in the pictures. And it creates this clever moment of solving a puzzle where you're the one noticing this thing that no one else is seeing. And it's creating this feeling of cleverness and surprise and, and delight in your viewer. Those are just a few examples of ways to make your audience feel something. But the most effective thing that I think you can do is highlight the feeling, highlight the tower that you want to run to in your creative work. Find people that have done that and then find either them deconstructing it or fans of that thing deconstructing it and just start adding to your metaphorical utility belt as a creator. One last bit on here, and I promised myself that I wasn't <laughs> gonna do this. But uh, East of Eden, okay, I've been reading that book, and um, it's, I know it's classic literature. And so when I started reading that, I thought, I'm not gonna talk about this <laughs> to anyone, and now I'm putting it out into the world to every podcast listener. Um, and I, you know, I didn't want to be the person walking around saying I'm reading East of Eden um, because I don't read a lot of fiction. I've been trying to read more, and I've found some that I've really got into. And uh, 
I had read some John Steinbeck, Steinbeck back in the day um, of Mice and Men, and I read it because it was so short, and I just thought I could get into that. And it was amazing, and I remember really liking it, and then my father-in-law was telling me about East of Eden, and I've just, the reason I'm bringing it up is partially because I just am having a, such a deep experience with it that I wanted to share. Um, you know, there's a lot of classic books that I've read that I can't get into and it, you know, I'm not a super literary dude, but the way he writes is just incredible. And if you're a fan of Steinbeck, I'm sure you know exactly what I mean. And so I'm just, I'm laughing, crying, everything. It's just an incredible book. But the reason I broke my promise to myself and wanted to bring it up here at the end of this episode is there was a quote that felt so relevant to the tower story um, and to this episode that I had to share it. And um, I'm not some uh, incredible orator, so I'm, I'm, I'm sure I'll bo- uh, butcher this to some degree, but I just thought it was too good not to share. So here's what it says. He starts one of the chapters saying, in human affairs of danger and delicacy, successful conclusion is sharply limited by hurry. So, so often men trip by being in a rush. If one were properly to perform a difficult and subtle act, he should first inspect the end to be achieved. And then once he had accepted the end as desirable, he should forget it completely and concentrate solely on the means. By this method, he would not be moved to false action by anxiety or hurry or fear. Very few people learn this. And then he goes into a bit where he is he's saying this great thing, and then he's applying it to this psychopathic character, literally um, a sociopathic kind of character. Um, but uh, I... I just think it's such a, it's a beautiful little passage, but it's also exactly what I've been trying to get at with the idea of strategic creativity and this idea of if you can spend the time to really inspect and find an end that you want to achieve, be it a goal or a feeling you want to produce in others Because you like when people produce that feeling in you, you like the kind of art that is able, you love a creative master that's able to, on command, make you feel the feelings that remind you of what it's like to be the best type of human and, and say, say yes to life, which is my kind of big thing. And that's a Viktor Frankl uh, book titled Yes to Life. Once you've accepted the end as desirable, once you've figured out that end that you're trying to achieve, you should. he says you should figure out the method, which is what this whole episode is about. What is the mode? What is the method? What is the mechanic of how you can get there? If you can really figure that out, then you can dedicate yourself to the method and you can dedicate yourself to the journey and completely forget about where you're trying to go and enjoy the process and just enjoy it until it until it brings you to the end that you're after. And I just thought it was uh, really beautiful. Highly recommend it. I mean, probably most people have read it besides me. I know a lot of people had to read it in uh, high school. Um, but if you're trying to get into fiction, 
he's just an incredible writer and I'm gonna I'm gonna go straight into another Steinbeck book after this so there you go there you have it hope it helps Creative Pep Talk is your weekly podcast companion for your creative journey. I'm your host, Andy J. Pizza. I'm a New York Times bestselling picture bookmaker and illustrator for clients like Apple and Xbox. I pep talk teams at creative hubs like Warby Parker and Sesame Street. And I make this podcast because as someone with ADHD, it takes a whole lot of creativity just to get out of bed in the morning, let alone attempting to try to create a thriving creative practice. This show is just me sharing the things that seem to be helping me in case it helps anybody else. Shout out to Yoni Wolf and the band Y for our theme music and soundtrack. Huge thanks to Connor Jones of Pinning Beautiful for sound design and editing the show. Massive thanks to Katie Chandler, Ryan Appleton, and Sophie Miller for podcast assistance of all kinds. And thanks to you for listening. Until we speak again, stay pepped up.